This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. Welcome to The Feed. The hockey world was stunned and saddened to learn of the death of Leafs legend Boreas Salming on November 24th, precious few months after he received an ALS diagnosis. Ever the warrior, Salming said a final farewell to his legion of fans, his former teammates, and the young crop of future hockey heroes at the Scotiabank Arena last month. And by sharing his difficult journey with all of us, he has helped to raise awareness about this devastating, debilitating disease. Tammy Moore is the CEO of the ALS Society of Canada. She joins us now on the feed, and I thank you for that. You're in San Diego at an ALS conference. Thanks for taking the time to discuss what's going on right now. Thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. Tammy, you were at the Scotiabank Arena when Boreas Salming said his final farewell. What went through your mind? I was just so struck, and obviously the emotion in the arena that night was incredible, to be able to see the way that people responded to him as their hero, but then also as they recognized what he was going through and the devastation that comes with ALS. You know, it seemed to move very quickly for him. His diagnosis came, I believe, in the summer, and he passed away on November 24th. Is that typical of someone who's been handed an ALS diagnosis, Tammy? The challenge with ALS is actually that it manifests in so many different ways. So while Borea's example and... His reality was very short when he was given the diagnosis. For other people, that they can live much longer than that as well. So it's always difficult to tell, which is part of what makes it such a complex and complicated disease. Let's understand a little bit more about it if we possibly can. Can you describe ALS? What is it? How does it affect the human body? So ALS is a neurodegenerative disease. And essentially what happens is we have motor neurons that connect from our brain to our muscles. And so for ALS, that motor neuron becomes sick and starts to die. And therefore, the connection can't get through to say, brain, tell my hands to be able to move. And so in that way, as motor neurons die, then the muscles start to um, atrophy and no longer move. Why does someone die from ALS? For the most part, people die because as their um, motor neurons are dying in, eventually the muscle that gets uh, impacted is the diaphragm. And so people are no longer able to breathe as an aspect of ALS. And so that obviously would be absolutely devastating. The other side of all of this, and and it's just as, as difficult, the inability to walk and talk and eat and swallow, and as you mentioned, breathe, these are really tough way to go, and it's my understanding that the brain is is still intact in terms of thinking. That that must be very difficult to be trapped inside your body. Yeah, and that does that is the reality for many of the people who are given an ALS diagnosis. But there is also a portion of the people where there's an FTD or frontal templar dementia, and for the people who have that diagnosis, there actually is an impact on their behavior and. Um, not like Alzheimer's, but uh, they do have a, a different form of ALS as well. So it definitely is a devastating disease, and you can appreciate as somebody loses their abilities. Um, and often when I'm presenting and I say, you know, imagine sitting there, and for the next several minutes while we finish this interview, you can't move a muscle. Yeah. You feel something on your face. You can't reach up. You can't cough. You can't even speak to tell somebody that you're having a challenge. It's an absolutely... Um, challenging uh, disease from that perspective. Some of the stats uh, that you have on your website are these. Uh, An estimated 3,000 Canadians are currently living with ALS. Each year, approximately 1,000 will learn that they have ALS. Another 1,000 Canadians will die from the disease. Four out of five people diagnosed with ALS will die within five years. And here's the, the really hard part. There is no cure yet for ALS. That's right. And what we feel, too, is that we're starting to see the increase in the numbers as well. And so even at ALS Canada and the support services that we provide, we're seeing an increase year over year. And we're trying to understand where is that number coming from to be able to determine what is happening. But it is the reality. And I think another important stat that people are often shocked by is that each one of us has a 1 in 300 chance in the course of our lifetime of being given this diagnosis. Wow. And, and in, in other words, anyone could develop ALS. 
Yes, there is a small percentage of the population that have familial ALS, meaning it's passed, it's, you'll get in the person's genes and it's passed from generation to generation. And for people with that type of ALS, it's devastating because generations can be impacted. But with the rest of us who may have a sporadic uh, ALS, yes, you're right, any one of us could, and it strikes out of nowhere. And so if there's no cure and there's no way of knowing who's going to be affected, how does one protect, prevent, prepare? Or is that even possible? It's not really possible, but when given an ALS diagnosis, and part of the projects that we're working on is getting earlier diagnosis, because the earlier that somebody gets that, they're able to get into clinical trials that can help to to see what treatments might be coming available. They can also get into a multidisciplinary clinic, which is the best way for somebody to be living with ALS because they're going to get the appropriate support that they need, whether it's equipment or occupational therapy, um, respirology, anything that's necessary to help them to navigate their disease and to manage. What kinds of treatments are available and what would be considered the purpose of these treatments? So we're starting to see therapies that are coming available. My personal connection to ALS was when my cousin was diagnosed 15 years ago, and at that point there was one therapy. Now we have two therapies that have been approved in Canada this year alone. And so while they um, are not curative, meaning that you don't take something and suddenly get better, what they can do is start to slow the progression of the disease. And so while somebody can maintain their abilities longer, you can appreciate if you can continue to move your arm, if you can continue to speak, how important that would be. And we're starting to see more all the time. Even as you had mentioned, I'm down at the um, international conference, we're hearing about more uh, and we're seeing more demand in the clinical trial space, more opportunity for investment from companies than we ever have in the past. We're at a game-changing time for ALS. You mentioned early diagnosis. What would be some of the the early signs? Well, again, because of the way that ALS manifests, they could be varied. So for somebody with vulvar ALS, where it starts in their speech, they're going to start slurring their speech. For other people, again, like my cousin, he started dropping his hockey stick because he had muscle weakness in his hands. For some people, it's that they start tripping and they notice that more which are all symptoms that unto themselves may not immediately be apparent as to what it is. And why we're working on earlier diagnosis is to make sure that community neurologists, because that might be where somebody eventually gets referred, have a better understanding and are comfortable making a referral to an ALS specialty clinic. And we have many in a network across the country. How important has the passing of, of a man, a hockey hero, a well-known person around the world, someone like Boreas Salming, how important is that when it comes to research, awareness, and fundraising? It's critical. And it's so difficult, you know, when you see somebody like Boreas, who was such a, an amazing person, and um, had so much strength, and then somebody can see the rapid progression and the reality of ALS, it starts to put a face to the disease. But you can also appreciate how quickly it took Boria or Maurice Belanger, the member of parliament who had been diagnosed, that very quickly people withdraw from the public eye. And so once again, the visibility of ALS is reduced. So in this moment, this is when people are struck by the reality. They think back to the ice bucket challenge. They start to link those things. And we hope that it inspires people to go, wait a minute, I need to take action because awareness is not enough. And that's the only way we're going to get there. You know, we fund research through ALS Society of Canada. We fund the National Research Program. But the amount of research that is uh, we can invest in is such a small proportion to what's really needed to better understand the disease and make significant advances. So a very costly disease because you can appreciate that somebody is facing this progressive paralysis, the equipment, the support that they're going to require are very significant. And so that makes it even more challenging to be able to do this, uh, to make the investments that are necessary. Where can people go to help and to learn more about ALS but also to donate? Absolutely. So our website at als.ca 
has a lot of information resources. We want to make sure people are empowered and informed to be able to navigate their own journey and so people can understand about ALS. It's also where they can learn about the research that's being done. And of course, ALS.ca slash donate is a way that people can really make a difference. And we leverage funds to be able to make uh, further investments in research and to support people who are living with ALS today, as we've done even in Ontario with over 1,200 families this year alone. Tammy Moore, CEO of the ALS Society of Canada, much appreciated. Thank you very much. Next, the story of another former Toronto Maple Leaf battling ALS. Here's Jim Lang. On Wednesday, the Toronto Maple Leafs honored Borea Salming and at the same time launched a fundraiser for ALS Action Canada. One of the last people to see Borea Salming in Toronto is a former member of the Maple Leafs, former NHLer, very active with the NHL alumni and someone who is battling ALS himself, Mark Curtin. How you doing, Mark? I'm good, Jim. How are you doing? And thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I follow you on social media. I know how tireless you are uh, fighting for the rights for ALS, doing the work that you do. Uh, to help ALS, obviously they, it, it's 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 an ongoing need every day for Canadians and people around North America. But in some way, has what happened to Boris Salming helped shine a light on ALS in this country and realize how important it is to give? Oh, I think it is. I think it has for sure. I mean, um, don't forget he was just diagnosed in July, so he had a very very aggressive type of uh, ALS called bulbar which uh, you know, takes you out pretty quickly. Um, but uh, having said that, uh, there's no question that ALS is in the forefront, especially in the National Hockey League right now. And it's time to ride that wave as, as long as we can to create more awareness and, uh, and get things right in the ALS world. So before we get to some of the things I want to ask you about, Mark, because we've known each other a long time, that's. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Is some people assume ALS you can live for years, but there's different forms of ALS that can hit people differently. Right. Correct. Right. That's correct. There's, uh, there's the main two kinds are ALS, sporadic ALS, which is what 95% have, and then you've got 5% that have what's a genetic ALS, which is what Chris Snow has, the assistant GM in Calgary. Mm. Um, the and then when you go back to sporadic, there, there's different uh, types of sporadic. Um, or Borea had the bulbar, which re- sticks in his front with respiratory swallowing, uh, breathing, that kind of thing. Whereas I have it in my arms and my legs, and eventually it gets to the front. So it just goes a different direction. Uh, but, um, it, you know, it, 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 as you say, you look back, a few years ago, before uh, Major League Baseball had their inaugural uh, Lou Gehrig Day, mm-hmm. really nobody knew the difference between ALS and MS. No. And now it's in the forefront, and, and everybody's making a lot of noise, and people are starting to understand it a little better. Mark, for you, a professional athlete, um, great career at Peterborough, long pro career, for Boris Salming, almost a superhuman athlete and physique, into his 70s, a lot of people assume if you're a pro athlete that maybe ALS won't hit you as hard as other people. But is that the case at all? Well, you know what? I was asked that a lot because I'm going into my, I guess it'll be uh, fifth year in March and uh, eighth year since uh, symptom onset. Um, and so I thought maybe that might be the case just because I was in a little better shape. But you know what? The king was in good shape too. Mm. And uh, it, it devastated, just took them apart. So, you know, there's no prisoners with this. It's a, it's a nasty, torturous illness. And, you know, the public and the powers to be have got to take notice of it and, and try and get it righted. Speak with Mark Curtin, former NHLer and uh, living with ALS, talking about the importance to give to ALS in Canada. October 10th, 1979, Maple Leaf Gardens. You beat Wayne Thomas of the New York Rangers for your first NHL goal. Your teammate that night, Boris Salming, you're a kid not that far removed from Peterborough. You're playing the same team as Boris Salming. You score your first NHL goal in Maple Leaf Gardens. What are some of your memories of that evening? Well, I mean, you know, for being originally I was, uh, I was born in uh, Regina, but I grew up in Toronto. So, you know, the memories of putting on your leaf sweater uh, for your first game and, 
uh, especially with a team like that that was very, very uh, veteran. And uh, it, it was such a huge, huge deal. And uh, then the score on my first shot, first shift, was over the top. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I tell people that when I look at that uh, replay, I just closed my eyes and knocked the peanut butter off the top shelf, eh, Jim? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Mark, I, I've seen some amazing things involving the Leafs over the years. One of them was the almost emotional thank you from Johnny Bauer to the fans that night a number of years ago, how beloved he was. But but the scene of Daryl Sidler raising the arm or Boris Salmi to wave to the fans, I mean, I have a hard time even talking about it. I mean, it, it's yeah. something like I, Leaf fans and hockey fans, even people who hate the Leafs, will never forget it. I know. It was very, very emotional. It was hard to watch. And uh, I was down there. I wasn't there on the Friday when that happened. I watched it on TV, but uh, my wife and I were down there on Saturday, hmm. and we spent a couple of periods up in the Shanahan box with uh, Boy and his family and Tiger and his wife and their own his wife. And uh, boy, oh boy, when, when Lisa and I went into the room, our first uh, thought looking around was how much love there was in that room. And uh, it was... It was it was a powerful night, powerful night. Well, Mark, brother, you deserve it. For you and your family, everyone else battling ALS in this country, you absolutely deserve it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, uh, contact the ALS Society of Canada. It, whatever you can give is greatly appreciated. Mark, somewhere up in heaven, Roger Nielsen smiling down at you, realizing that he coached not just a great player but a great person, and he did a job well done. Mark, uh, I mean, I've known you a long time. We've played against each other in charity hockey, and I, I, I'm, 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 I'm not biased. I'm a, I'm a big fan, and I, and whatever you do, and whatever help we can give you, we're going to give you, and keep up the good fight, brother. Well, no, I appreciate that, Jim, and absolutely, I'll give you a shout once we get closer to this. Absolutely, but, uh, no, I know appreciate hearing from you, and uh, thanks for like every little bit of ALS talk like this is, is huge because it's. All about awareness, right? Amen to that. Take care, Mark. It's an absolute honor and a pleasure. Okay, man. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. I'm Tina Cortez. We have learned from Jim Lang's conversation with Mark Curtin that every ALS case is different. Meet Andrew Dark, a York Region resident diagnosed in March of 2021. Welcome to the feed, Andrew. Thank you very much, Tina. Take us back, if you can, to when you learned about your ALS diagnosis. Sure. Well, going back right as far as 2017, uh, I was in my early 70s, uh, but actually I was still a competitive cyclist at that time. And then during the year, I managed to trip over something on the floor, hit the foot around very hard, and it turned out I had broken a bone in my hip. During the uh, rehabilitation from that injury, uh, it became evident that there were other problems that I should have checked into that may, in fact, precipitated the fall that resulted in this injury. Eventually, I was referred to the ALS clinic at Sunnybrook Hospital in uh, 2018 and was followed there for actually three years. This was three years, a time when I experienced quite a, a few falls, but the diagnosis was not established until 2021 uh, when I started experiencing weakness in my arms. And further testing at that point revealed that I had, in fact, uh, diagnosis of ALS. And as you were saying earlier, it's important to realize that ALS comes in all different shapes and sizes. There are people like me who progress rather slowly, and there are people like Borya Sonning who we've seen tragically uh, return to Canada over the last few weeks and now pass away, who progress very rapidly. I saw a, a similar rapid progression with my wife's brother, actually, who was diagnosed 
and passed away with increasing and more severe disability in just two years. So at that time, uh, little did my wife and I realized that we would uh, be facing the same problem in our family as well. But all in all, I actually consider myself to be one of the lucky ones in a sense who has a slow progression of the disease. But ultimately, the, the disease is one of a relentless progression in which increasing weakness and inability to control muscles develops relentlessly and eventually occupies all the muscles, including those involved in talking, swallowing, and breathing. Of course, what every patient with ALS wants is access to more and better drugs that will uh, significantly slow the disease uh, if in fact not stop it or reverse it. There are only two drugs available in Canada right now uh, that have a modest effect on prolonging life or improving function. Um, Health Canada recently approved another new drug for ALS, but the federal uh, provincial agency that controls access to drugs for ALS under the provincial drug benefit programs has imposed uh, rather severe restrictions on who will be able to access this new drug. In fact, the bottom line is if if your disease started more than 18 months previously, you're not going to get the drug paid for by the provincial drug benefit plan. And actually, this was highlighted even more dramatically in a study published by the University of Calgary just recently. They assessed that only 7% of the patients in the ALS clinic in Calgary would be eligible to receive this drug if the criteria proposed for the provinces is actually imposed by the provinces. So this is really a very unfortunate situation where people who have a disease that's progressing whether slowly or fast, are going to find it increasingly difficult uh, to access these drugs when the criteria are so rigid. On average, in Ontario, it takes two years to get a diagnosis of ALS. In my case, as I mentioned, it took three years study and investigation at the ALS clinic in Sunnybrook before I was diagnosed with ALS finally. And frankly, in the years before I originally had the fall, I was having the odd fall when hiking, for example, that probably were the start of the disease even at that time. But it wasn't until frank weakness started to occur in my arms that I was subject to further investigation leading to the diagnosis. Can you describe for us what your life is like now with the diagnosis? How, how has it progressed in you? Well, my, my disabilities are primarily a weakness in my arms, um, which has now progressed somewhat to the point that I have difficulty in dressing myself properly. Uh, I, and I also have some problems with walking, not because my arms are particularly, my legs are particularly weak, but because they're not always as well coordinated. So I have to be very careful uh, when I'm walking to avoid tripping and falling. Um, 
I have bruises on both my arms right now from falling into walls in various places. The, the impact is also seen in very simple things like um, not being able to use a, a knife and fork properly. I can't comb, comb my hair without some difficulty. I can't lift the coffee bag with one arm anymore. And, and I, I can't lift uh, my baby uh, granddaughter. So these are small things. They're, they're not major things that some of your previous guests may have described, but they do have a, an impact. You may be able to tell that my voice is a little bit weaker. It's, I can tell it's weaker than it was several years ago. So I will be doing something called voice banking, which is a technique that allows our computer to synthesize a voice that mimics my own. And eventually I'll be able to type and the computer will generate speech that kind of sounds like me. I want to mention also that I read a book recently uh, written by a man with ALS in a long-term care facility in Canada. He has no control or movement in his arms or legs, and he cannot speak. He can hear and he can think perfectly. He's written an account of his life in this long-term care facility, which is truly harrowing when he describes the difficulties he has in long-term care, including incidents of abuse, which are blankly horrific. So ALS comes in, as I said, many shapes and sizes people who can still walk and talk, as I'm doing, and people who are, as it's known as, locked in because they have no method of communication other than, in this case, this man can move his eyes and type by shifting his eye gaze on a keyboard and generating a voice through typing with his eyes. It's truly remarkable and a devastating disease. You're absolutely right. What a remarkable story. Andrew, you experienced your brother-in-law's death from ALS. You watched Boria Salming's story. What has been the impact on you personally? Yeah, for sure. Watching Boria Salming into the winter at the gardens uh, and seeing his teammates and friends having to lift his arm up to even wave to the crowd is truly dramatic and tragic. And I think uh, my, my boys, as they would have watched me, as they have watched me progress downhill somewhat and then being able to see Borja again, that they cheered for when they were younger, showing the more severe face of this disease. It's, it's truly an emotional experience. Andrew, you said earlier on in our conversation that you were lucky. Well, I've got to say that we're the lucky ones to have shared this time with you and I thank you on behalf of all of us here at 105.9 The Region for sharing your story. Thank you very much. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 105.9 The Region. When we come back, Kevin Frankish with The Dangers of Driving High. (music) 
This is The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The CAA is back on the feed with a warning about the consumption of edibles and getting behind the wheel. Kevin Frankish now with that story. So it is the problem of the times. It used to be drinking and driving. That is still a problem, but we have somewhat of a handle on that. Now, with the legalization of marijuana, cannabis driving, driving high, is a big problem. Teresa DeFelice from uh, the CAA joins me right now, and that's what we're talking about this time around, Teresa, and that is driving high. Absolutely, and it is a problem, and as is alcohol-impaired driving still is a problem, but we've got more and more people who are consuming cannabis in different ways and getting behind the wheel. And similar to alcohol, one of the problems is I feel fine. So someone has a drink or two and I feel fine. So someone has a puff and they say, I feel fine. What's going on? Well, I think when you're under the influence of anything, you're probably not the best judge to determine whether you feel fine. Uh, In our study that we actually took a few months ago, you know, we asked people if they were getting behind the wheel after consuming cannabis and about 6%, so roughly 600,000 drivers have driven after consuming cannabis within three months of uh, when we took the survey. And a half admitted to getting behind the wheel within three hours of consuming cannabis and about 30% felt high while driving. So, so even some people are, you know, telling themselves they feel fine, but know that they aren't. Other people are thinking they may feel fine, but they're probably not the best ones to determine whether they feel fine because they're under the influence. And this, unfortunately, and like drinking and driving, it's difficult to give a black and white answer about whether you are legally able to drive. So, for instance, when it comes to drinking, someone who is bigger, of course, has a has a more of a tolerance to alcohol. There, but we don't know exactly what their blood alcohol level is. But it's even more difficult from cannabis because it is hard to measure right now. And we're not just talking about taking a puff. We're talking about edibles, and edibles sometimes can sneak up on you, and you may not even realize it. Tell me a little bit about the problem with that. So our study revealed a few interesting facts. So one is that edible use is surpassing people consuming cannabis by smoking a joint. Uh, In fact, edibles is up in the past, uh, you know, it it was roughly, um, you know, 16% of people in, in 2019 were getting behind the wheel after consuming edibles. It's now at 26%. And in terms of overall usage, it was, you know, 62% and now 77% are consuming their cannabis by edibles. It has become, you know, people are are wary, not wanting to smoke. Mm -hmm. And so gummies, the chocolates, there's, you know, different candies. There's so many ways that people can consume cannabis now through through, uh, orally. And that's what people are choosing. It can sneak up on you. It metabolizes very differently. It can take longer to take effect, but it can also last longer. So someone who thinks they feel fine getting behind the wheel at the time that they're getting behind the wheel, half an hour, an hour later, depending on how long their drive is, could also all of a sudden get hit with the high that they thought they had already sort of surpassed when they left where they were. And and this is alarming and it should be something we should all be worried about um, because getting behind the wheel after you've consumed cannabis, alcohol, whatever drugs or whatever uh, your, your pleasure is, is dangerous. And how are you going to get the message out there? How do we get that message out there without sounding preachy? Yeah, you know, we're coming up on the holiday season. Uh, You know, CA is not telling people not to do what they want to do. You know, enjoy whatever it is you enjoy, but you need to find a different way home or make different plans if you can stay over. We have so many options today between cabs. If you're, you know, if you're in a big city, you've got transit, uh, you've got the different ride sharing, you know, find a designated driver. That still holds true. That designated driver is not to drink alcohol or to take cannabis. It's really to get those passengers and they can have a turn next time around. But we need to get the message that, you know, if you think you feel fine, but you've consumed something, you're not the best judge of it. Um, And if you don't feel fine, you definitely should not be getting behind the wheel. And and one thing, and and I know we've talked about this a, a lot before, and that is don't make a decision after 
you have smoked up or taken an edible. You need to make a decision. You may need to make a plan before you even uh, start to do, before you even go to a party, before you even go out with people. You need to make an informed decision before you go up because, like you said earlier, you're not the best person to tell that you feel okay after you have consumed. Yes, and so if you, you know, everybody kind of knows where they're going to be going. They know what's going to be there. They know if they've got friends who consume cannabis or that cannabis is normally, uh, you know, where your outing is or alcohol. Um, but really, you know, and again, edibles has is on the rise. And so there are so many ways of now of consuming cannabis and people are enjoying the fact that they don't have to smoke. They can, they can eat uh, whatever they want that has, is laced with cannabis. Um, and so, you know, if you already know that you're going that route, make the plan before you go. Um, if your designated driver changes their mind, then, you know, have a, a backup plan. And and really, I mean, we all just want to have a really safe holiday season. It's been a rough few years. We need to make sure that we're keeping ourselves and everybody else around us safe. And and we can't emphasize this enough, I'm sure, and that is the responsibility of the host, the host of a party. We work so hard. If we invite people over, we clean the house from top to bottom. We, we put out decorations. We put out our de- best dishes. We cook or we order the best things. Part of that planning process should be how are my guests going to get home and how am I going to know that they're okay to drive? Yes, it is a host responsibility. Uh, even the courts have determined that, you know, in, in terms of tragic cases. It is it is whoever's hosting that party needs to take that ultimate re- responsibility um, and of, of their guests. And they, you don't want a tragedy coming out of your party. Um, and again, you know, edibles is up. Uh, consuming cannabis and alcohol, what we call polyuse, is, is up. I mean, half of the driver's who got behind the wheel are saying they did both, right? So they're not just going to a party and and having a cookie or smoking a joint. They're also having a drink. And, you know, Polly used half half of people who are getting behind the wheel, uh, you know, in a short time of of consuming are doing both. And this is a, you know, so this, this issue of alcohol impaired driving has gotten, is not the big issue anymore. Isn't true. People are doing both right now. And it's, it's scary. CAASCO.com. That's CAA South Central Ontario. I like to explain those letters. So CAASCO.com. Lots of great advice on that site. Eh, you know what? And also uh, some great advice about having roadside assistance and things like that. Thank you, Teresa. Have a great Christmas season. Thank you. Same to you, Kevin. Happy holidays to you and your listeners. After the break, how much is too much when it comes to screen time? Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Screen time for toddlers. How much is too much? How should parents decide what's appropriate for viewing and for how long when it comes to kids aged two to five? The Canadian Pediatric Society to the Rescue releasing new guidance last week to help parents, caregivers, even educators navigate the often uncharted waters of the digital world for children. Matthew Johnson is the Director of Education at Media Smarts in Ottawa and a major contributor to the Canadian Pediatric Society's new screen time guidance. Welcome, Matthew, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. So what prompted the Canadian Pediatric Society to ask for and issue new screen time guidelines for our little ones? Well, obviously, this is the kind of thing that does need to be uh, refreshed every now and then uh, because a lot of new research is done. Um, But the other issue, of course, was clearly the pandemic. particularly the early part of the pandemic when uh, so many of us were spending so much time uh, using screens. And it it became clear, I think, that uh, we really did need to make sure that the advice in the guidelines uh, still held up, both in relation to new research that's been done, 
but also uh, the, the changed reality of Canadian families. Kind of seems like in this case it's quality instead of quantity. And for instance, a couple of things that stood out for me, screen time for children under the age of two is still not recommended. The exception would be video chatting with extended family. And here's the other one that's pretty important, I think, for parents of children this age. From age two to age five, try and limit sedentary screen time to about an hour or maybe less a day. So there's a lot packed into that line. Yes, and it's important uh, to, to note that those limits are still there, the suggested limits. Um, we have found in the research that, there again, there are some exceptions. So that was very new, a very new finding, that uh, video chats with someone that the child already knows, like a family member, do seem to provide some benefit to the youngest kid. And uh, that was a really interesting finding because up till now, really the research has shown that there is no benefit for kids under two from screen activities. That doesn't mean that screen activities are, are bad for kids under two, but it does mean that because there's so much happening to kids' brain development during that period, time spent with screens with that one exception that's been found is taking away from the things that they really need to grow and to develop. Um, and when it came to the older kids, it was important to talk about uh, sedentary screen time specifically because we do know that there are uh, an increasing range of options for using screens that aren't necessarily sedentary, uh, things that get you up and moving, uh, like uh, exer games, things that maybe get you outside, uh, like geocaching or AR games like Pokemon Go. Um, and honestly, with the climate that we have in Canada, um, sometimes these are uh, good options for uh, replacing sedentary time. What are the risks posed to children aged 2 to 5 if they have too much screen time? Well, the risks really do have to do with, uh, in the one hand, um, simply too much uh, sedentary time. Uh, so that is the biggest concern, is that most of the time when you are using a screen device, you are um, not moving. And we know from a lot of different sources that kids and adults as well are, are not getting enough active time. Um, our, our, our media world, um, our physical environment, even the way our cities are built in many cases, discourages us from being active. Uh, and so we do have to be conscious of that. We have to push back against it. Um, we also know that screen use, particularly close to uh, bedtime, can have an impact on sleep, both the quantity and the quality of sleep, and that sleep as well is essential for young people's um, mental and physical development. So having said that, how does a parent then establish what would be called healthy screen habits at home starting now? Well, what we've developed is what we call the four M's model uh, for approaching it. Um, and these are just four different things that uh, we can do to help our kids and our families develop a better relationship with screens. So the first of those M's is to minimize. And it is important that that's just one of the four. But we do want, again, we want to think about minimizing, limiting screen time as much as possible and uh, minimizing the times when we use it. So for instance, uh, not using it uh, with at least an hour before bedtime. The second M is what we call mitigating. So reducing the risks associated with screen time. And that can be, for instance, creating a family media plan that everybody is going to follow, setting household rules about where and when uh, different screen activities can happen. And our research at MediaSmarts has found consistently, we've been studying this since 2000, and we found consistently that household rules about media use do have an impact on how kids behave, even teens. Um, we can also encourage uh, more positive uses of screens. Uh, so uh, prioritizing educational uses, creative uses, active uses of screens. Uh, we want to be involved in our kids' media lives um, as much as possible. We want to, with young kids, we want to be present and engaged when they're using them. 
Um, and that's partly so they see screens as a shared family activity, but it's also so that they know they can come to us if there are any problems. Um, and uh, we're also modeling digital media literacy for them. The third M is to be mindful, uh, to think about when screens are used, um, to uh, communicate the idea that screen devices are tools that we use for particular purposes at particular times. They're not just something that we turn on automatically uh, when we get up or when we get home. And finally, the last M is to model healthy screen use. Because of course, as adults, what we do sends a more powerful message than anything we can say. And so we do have to become conscious of our own screen habits. We have to think about uh, the messages those are sending, and we can make a conscious effort to model positive habits. So to say, for instance, why you're turning on a device, uh, what you're doing with it, and to turn it off and put it away when you're done. And I would think that offering alternatives would be good as well. Playing outdoors, even though we're getting into really cold weather, reading, puzzles, crafts, things that, that engage the mind and the body. Yeah, absolutely. And that is sort of the flip side of minimizing um, especially if you're not starting from scratch. If you're uh, maybe trying to minimize because you feel that your kids are spending already too much time with screens, uh, you can't just minimize. You have to come up with those alternatives. You have to be involved. Uh, so it's either that you're setting up activities for them to do or ideally you're uh, doing activities with them, whether that's you know, going out to play sports, whether that's going to a museum, um, going for a walk, but making sure that there is something to take up that time so that you're not just saying, don't so spend so much time on that device. You're saying, let's do this thing instead. Quality, not quantity. I like that. Mm -hmm. Matthew Johnson, Director of Education at Media Smarts in Ottawa, major contributor to the Canadian Pediatric Society's new screen time guidance. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And how much social media is excessive? Shaliza Bacchus with the results of a new survey. Social media is important to so many people for so many different reasons. We often turn to it to find news, to find what's going on with our peers and our colleagues, and for just everything at this point. But a NordVPN survey shows that Canadians spend more than six hours per week on social media, and that actually is a lot of time. Now, a lot of people also worry that social media giants are tracking them online with Facebook fearing 80% and 40% fear that Instagram is tracking them. And obviously, we had to bring someone in on this conversation because there is a lot going on in the social media world right now. And I'm joined by Justina Tamolivucha, Risk Team Lead at NordVPN. Thank you so much for joining me, Justina. Thank you for having me. Okay, can we talk about the base of this, that Canadians are spending so much time on social media? Why does six hours a week raise so much concern? Okay, so, well, to begin with, we surveyed more than, uh, we surveyed 20 countries and asked them how much time do they spend, do people in those countries spend online? And actually compared with other countries, Canada didn't rank so high when it comes to social media usage. So, for example, the first country that uh, uses social media the most, Mexico, actually uh, spend double amount of time on the social media. And so it's not really such a big number, but of course it is a lot when you take into consideration that it's six hours a week. Uh, and of course we have to talk about all the associated risks that we can encounter when using social media. So, uh, and there are quite a few. And I guess the first one, as you mentioned, people are definitely aware that social media giants could be tracking them online and collecting a lot of data. 51% of Canadians said that they are aware of it and that they are concerned about it. And why do you think that th this social media tracking is such a big problem for so many people? First of all, I would say that not many people understand the amount and what the amount of data that uh, those companies can collect and as well what kind of consequences it could have. Because of course we know that most, the main reason why companies collect that data is for marketing purposes, to send you targeted ads. 
And it, it's not a very bad thing in general, but uh, some people who are very aware that there are a lot of sensitive data and a lot of very personal data is collected and tracked for those reasons, they are a bit concerned. Also, you never know if the company who collects the data and shares with third parties is actually securing them. If a company gets hacked, all that information could be leaked publicly and a lot of sensitive personal information that you provide to those social medias. So what do you think are the best steps that Canadians can take to stay safe on social media? Because at the end of the day, almost everybody, I think 89% of the Canadian population uses social media. And what do you think the best ways are to stay safe? So I guess the number one rule is just not to overshare on social media. Just provide the information which is the most necessary and the most important for you to create the profile that you want to create. Uh, and also take uh, take a look into the um, all the privacy policies, the terms and conditions. I know they can be very extensive, but just to understand how that data is going to be used. One more very important thing that you have to do for social media accounts and all the other accounts that you have on the internet is to use strong passwords and don't use the same password for different accounts because if one password gets compromised online, then the user, the bad actors actually can take that password and try to use it on the other platforms, other accounts that you have. And that usually is the way how they get into your personal accounts. Justina, before I let you go, if you could give Canadians three tips to stay safe on social media and the grand takeaway, what would you say? First of all, use strong passwords for all of your social media accounts and not all on social media, all the accounts that you have online. It will prevent hackers from doing a very easy job to actually getting into your account. And don't reuse the same passwords. So if you need any help, you can always use password managers, which are uh, makes this process so much easier and to have strong and secure passwords for every single account you have. Also, don't overshare on social media uh, to provide only the necessary information that you have to. Turn off your geolocation tracking and make sure that whenever you post something on social media, your current location is not provided there. Some great tips. And if our listeners want some more information about you or about NordVPN, where can we go? You can go to NordVPN.com. We actually have quite a few press releases and additionally quite a few uh, blog posts with extra information on the similar topics, how to protect yourself online. Amazing. Justina, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. If you missed any part of our show today, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.